The Sportsman's Nation is proud to be a certified business member of 2% for Conservation. And this episode is brought to you by Go Wild. If you haven't had the opportunity to check out Go Wild, you need to do so. It has every aspect of a hunter's life, from scouting to shooting to tagging the animal, cleaning to cooking. It's all embraced by this Go Wild app. It's a social media destination designed for outdoor enthusiasts by outdoor enthusiasts. So you're not going to find any politics. You're not going to find any BS. You're going to be able to post your harvest pictures without somebody creeping on you or talking down to you about your passion. This community, basically that's what it is. It's a community of people who are all like-minded individuals and who have a passion for the outdoors. So if you want to learn more about this Go Wild app, you need to go visit timetogowild.com or download it to your smartphone wherever apps can be downloaded. So it's time to go wild. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Uh, I appreciate everybody continuing to turn in. The growth uh, for this podcast is outstanding, uh, especially on a local level. I really dig that. And uh, today we have another great podcast. We're going to be talking with the writer of the column, Whitetail365 and the Iowa Sportsman Magazine, Tom Peplinski. Tom Peplinski had to make sure I said it right. We're going to be talking about this time of year in the whitetail woods specifically, this pre-rut time frame, right? What these bucks are doing between the October 25th to the November 1st into maybe November 3rd time frame. Um, the rut really hasn't hit officially yet, but a lot is happening in the woods, and we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what you should be doing, what you should be looking for, tips, tricks, strategy, uh, a little insight. Uh, Tom has been hunting the woods of Iowa for several, several, several years, so the dude knows what he's talking about, and uh, that's what this podcast is about, and hopefully you listen to this podcast, you can take away something to the woods with you and you're able to become successful or you can look at what you're currently doing a little bit different and uh, maybe not not give up on this time of year so easily, right? I, I know that uh, for me, this upcoming weekend, I'm jacked to get into the woods. Uh, I have a lot of places that I want to I want to be at one time, but you know, there's only so much time. There's only one of me and uh, I'm really looking forward to trying to find the fresh sign, uh, and, and hunt it and, you know, maybe go to some historically good places and check my trail cameras and see what that data says. So, um, I think I've talked too much already. Let's get into today's pre-rut podcast with Tom Peplinski. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mr. Tom Peplinski. How you doing, man? 
Hi, good to be here. Good uh, afternoon in Southern Iowa. That's right. That's right. Um, what part of the state are you from? Um, I have a house by Humiston in Wayne County, and I also have a farm in Decatur County. Gotcha. Okay. So you kind of bounce back and forth between those two counties uh, throughout the yeah the season? Yeah. Yes, I do. And I also, uh, I also have a couple hunters every year that come in. Um, I have a really, really small guide service, um, that I run, but maybe that's maybe one or two guys a year. Gotcha. Okay. So before we get started, why don't you tell everybody, we already know where you're from, but why don't you tell everybody, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm actually a little semi-retired. I've done instrumentation and controls for about 25 years in the pulp and paper and the power generation utilities industries. Um, and I run a blog called fullpotentialoutdoors.com. And that's a, a blog with just a bunch of whitetail hunting information. And I also write the uh, Whitetails 365 column for Iowa Sportsman Magazine. That's right. And that, my friend, is why you are here today, because we are going to talk about whitetails and it's one thing right now that is on everybody's mind we're getting to that that magical time you know this is this podcast is has launched on October 25th and for anybody who is ha- halfway knowledgeable about whitetails it's that it's that pre-rut time of year it's that time of year where you're sitting in a tree stand and all of a sudden off in the distance in last light you see one a big buck steps out of nowhere, and it's that time of year where the big boys start to get on their feet. They start moving around a little bit more than they've used to, and I think today I want to talk to you about this time of year and maybe even go into the first week of November just a little bit and talk a little bit about tactics, hunting strategy, what to look for, so forth and so on. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, so let's start at the very beginning. Today is October 25th, and we are, we're sitting at that time of year where it's almost like you pray for a cold front to come through. And how, how, from your, from your, from your experience, how important is a cold front coming through late November or excuse me, late October to, uh, to, to get in the tree and start hunting? Well, um, if I had to actually talk about the weather a little bit, I would say by the time you get to October 25th, um, I'd, I'd rather wait for the first hot bow to come in the heat. Um, definitely, it seems like uh, mature buck movement will uh, be less and less as it gets warm, you know, 60, 70 degrees. Um, but for me, that 25th of October time frame is the ramp up the the major ramp up to what I call like the bucks rut. Right. Um, so not, ne- not necessarily when the does are coming in the heat yet, um, but the bucks rut. And the reason why I say that is because um, I've been seeing this for like the past 15, 18, 20 years, something like that. I've had the opportunity to hunt uh, multiple farms um, that have been separated by, um, you know, 10 miles, 20 miles um, here in Southern Iowa, it's 20 miles. Um, I used to hunt a farm in western Wisconsin that was 400 acres that was simply separated by a state highway. And what I saw and what I still see for the last, like I said, 15 to 20 years is 
the most important trigger for these mature bucks to really get on their feet around this October 25th time frame is that first doe coming in the heat. Um, so whether whether there's a cold front or not, to me that to me that that October cold front is is really really important when bucks are on a bed to feed and feed to bed pattern. Um, it's something we just saw just this last weekend. Um, that October 22nd time frame, a cold front came through southern Iowa, and the bucks were on their feet on the feed to bed pattern. But once you get to October 25th, if the bucks are still in a bed to feed pattern. Uh, definitely that cold front seems like it gets them on their feet a little bit earlier. Um, gives you a chance to get them on a, on an evening hunt, you know, in a transition area or on a food plot. Um, maybe some alfalfa or standing soybeans, something like that. But what really gets me excited this time of year, what I really look for is that first hot dough, that, that first hot dough that comes in early. Um, so if I can just take a step back. Um, we're all probably familiar with this kind of like bell curve where the majority of does come in the heat um, around that 13th, 14th, 15th of, of, excuse me, of November every year. Right. Um, but it seems like many years you'll get a doe that comes in the heat October 20th, October 27th, somewhere in that early time frame. And when that happens, it seems like it triggers some unbelievable action for that late October time frame. Um, so that's kind of um, when I when I when I sit back and and even right now. So so we're at October 25th, but even 24th, 23rd, 26th, 27th. Um, if I'm going out and I can see, let's say a cut cornfield or a or a standing bean field, and I can see some acreage, which is something I I kind of like to do. Um, in that late October time frame, and if I can actually see a doe that's being dogged by bucks because she's in heat um, in late October, that will trigger a flurry of activity with all bucks, but especially a mature buck and get him on his feet um, during this time frame, that early November, late October time frame. Right, right. So obviously, does come into heat different times throughout you know the you know let's just say october 20th to even you know into that thanksgiving time frame right so correct any advice or i guess strategy into locating that first doe and trying to because obviously if you can find her you can find where the bucks are going to be is there how do you go about finding that first doe well so there's, there's two ways to really kind of hunt this time period. And, and one is, one is you just don't know, and there's no way of really knowing when it happens. And, and so that method for me is always about hunting um, transition areas. I like planning interior food plots, which are just really, really small uh, food plots that kind of, they kind of cut off the deer between their bedding and where they really want to be for their evening feeding pattern. So if let's say their evening feeding pattern is a 20 acre, uh, really lush alfalfa field, and you can somehow place a little interior food plot. that's like a quarter acre in between, um, their bedding area and that lush alfalfa where they really want to be. That's one method of hunting. And then there's really no way of knowing when that first doe comes into heat, but you're just, you're, you're, you're hunting that, um, bed to feed, uh, pattern. 
And if a doe comes in the heat, you'll have a flurry of activity because the bucks and the does are going to come through on that same pattern, hopefully. The other method to really answer your question is, let's say, let's say I don't have a good win um, for, on an evening hunt or I don't have a, a transition plot that I really feel comfortable with hunting. Maybe I'm running cameras in my transition plots. I don't have a good pattern on a mature buck. Then I might actually sit in an observation stand um, where I know I can't get busted, where I know I can go in and watch um, a primary feeding pattern, let's say that same 20-acre lush alfalfa field um, from a distance. You know, I can get in there clean. I can get out clean at the end of the night. I'm not bumping all the deer out. And I've had it happen many times in my hunting career where just by watching that, maybe a couple nights in a row, you'll pick up on a doe that's actually in heat early. Um, there'll be a mature buck with her. There'll be three other bucks. It, it's almost like you're watching an elk hunt because that's the only doe that's in heat and you'll have this mature buck. that's almost like this harem bull. And there's all these other two and three year olds and year and a half that are kind of in the area. And it's just a frenzy on this food source. And you know that that one doe is that early doe that's in heat. So there's kind of a kind of two different ways to approach it. If you don't have a way to observe it, uh, then, then you just don't know then you're just hoping for that early doe that kicks them off. And the reason why I like that early doe in this early, this early part or this pre-rut time period is because when, when you get that first doe and these bucks go nuts and they start moving and chasing, there's only that one doe that's in heat and maybe she gets bred, but the deer are still on their feet. Right. Whereas when you get later into the season, now you start getting that, that uptick of the bell curve of these does coming in heat when you get beyond November 5th and it's harder now because there's two and three and four does that are in heat and uh, the deer are, are uh, less susceptible to move because they don't have to. So, so that's, that's why I'm really keen on that, on that first doe. And maybe you can't necessarily hunt that first doe because you don't know when she's coming in heat, but it really makes this time period between the 25th and like this November time frame really great hunting. Right. So, Let's say so, uh, someone does not have access to any type of food plots, right? They're, they're maybe hunting a piece of public land or they're knocking on doors to hunt some, you know, some local farmer's ground and they don't have food plots. Um, and, you know, Iowa is an ag state. Maybe they don't have ag. What kind of terrain features or areas on a farm should we be looking for that would bring us the best odds as far as like a tree stand location? Well, the classic, the classic funnel. Um, so where I'm from in Southern Iowa, but I, I think the whole state is like this. Um, there's fence lines all over, so you can look for a fence jump. Um, if you have, uh, if there are no aid fields, um, there's still a lot of like inside corners, um, which create a funnel. Um, you have uh, timbered points that connect um, between two pieces of timber. So let's say you have even fallow ground, uh, ground or a big cow pasture or something that deer wouldn't necessarily want to cross, but you have a timbered point coming out from two different uh, pieces of timber. It makes those deer uh, a little bit less cautious. So they'll cross there a lot of times instead of just uh, haphazardly crossing this big open field. Um, but I'll tell you what, um, it's tough if you don't have, if you're hunting public land that doesn't have a primary food source in an egg field, or even if you're hunting 
farm ground ground that doesn't have a primary food source doesn't have to be a food plot but if you're just hunting um, whitetail ground that's timber or fallow um, you still have to somehow find that primary food source at least that's the way i hunt yeah i try to find that primary food source um, whether it's egg whether it's um, acorns in an acorn year um and you have to figure out where they're bedding, where their primary food source is, and there's still going to be transition areas. But, you know, let's say you're hunting public ground, and the primary bedding is uh, dry marsh, and that's what you that's what you surmise is the primary bedding. The transition area could be the edge of that marsh. It could be some red dogwood, a red dogwood draw um, leading out to an oak flat. So there's still a transition area between primary bedding and primary food source and, and that's what i like to hunt because you can get in without busting the deer and in theory the deer work past you and out into their primary food source and are gone um by sunset or you know by quitting time and so you can get out um without bumping those deer okay. so that i think that holds true whether you're in farm country or whether you're on public land or whether you're on um, you know, farm country that's been abandoned and now it's fallow. I think it holds true every, everywhere in the whitetails world because they have primary bedding and primary food. It's just different. Right, right. So I, I saw a study that was put out by the QDMA and it showed the peak in scrapes compared to the peak in rubs compared to the peak breeding and all like the peaks of everything. How, when you're, when you're walking into the timber and you see some fresh sign, does that make you want to change your hunting strategy at all? Do you ever set up over, let's say, a fresh scrape or a rub line? Well, so 20 years ago, if we can go back that far, that's all we had. So I remember the first game cameras that came out, you had a roll of film. Yep. And you went, you went out and you had, you had, you know, 36 pictures or 24 pictures, and it maybe lasted a day. And then you were checking your cameras and then running 30 miles to get your film developed. So 20 years ago, that's really all you had was observation and the freshest sign that was available. And that's still true today. But cameras have made it so much easier because now um, you have the ability to check the camera to see actually what deer are make, what deer is making that sign. And now, of course, we have cameras that will send you the picture right to your smartphone via email. Um, there's some other cameras that will actually combine uh, data from, you know, I don't, I don't use them, but there's five or six cameras out in the field that send all their pictures to one camera and, and that'll send it to your phone. So there's, you can get really on demand data real time right now. Yep. Um, I don't have enough cameras and, and enough of the fancy cameras, or I don't have any of the cameras that send it to my phone. So, and I also don't like going out and checking cameras you know, every day I'm checking them every 10 days, something like that. Right. But I think for this October 25th to November 5th time frame, um, your best ticket is, you know, almost to pretend you don't have the cameras and just hunt the best buck sign you can find adjacent to your transition areas, um, your main food sources and, and hunt that sign. Um, I'd be interested for you to tell me on the, on the phone right now, what that study showed, but, my prediction would be before you tell me that is that this October 25th, November 5th time frame, to me would be the peak uh, scraping and rubbing 
time frame. It seems like that's when they really uh, go nuts for leaving buck sign. And so if you can get on that fresh sign in those areas, that's your that's your best ticket. Yep, absolutely. And you're you're right there. I think right about this time, the the third week in October is the peak of the um, is the peak of the scrapes. The week before or the early part of October was actually the peak of rubs. And then that slows down as, so it's, it's almost like two bell curves, right? You have the peak of scrapes and the peak of doe does coming into estrus. And the more that the does come into estrus, the less scrapes that they're, they're making. So they're, they're more focused on breeding than leaving sign. Yeah. So, so actually if we go back to, a little bit earlier in our discussion, if, if you're looking for a way to identify when that first doe comes in the heat, that's one way to do it. Right. So if, if you have the ability to run cameras and you have the ability to, to check them without disturbing the deer and, you, and so you can check them every two, three days. And again, that's, that's not something I do. Um, but if you are doing it and you see that the activity on your scrapes is dropping off, that could be an indication that the first, um, doe has become available yeah i think uh i can't stress enough for me anyways how much um i look at that and try and predict that and try and watch that is that first available doe and it's frustrating to me because if i if i can just for a minute um hunters want a date so a lot of times when you're in a discussion with five hunters whether that's whether it's at work um whether it's on my blog, you know, they want a date, you know, when is, when is the best rut activity for mature bucks? And the reason why people want a date, and I understand that is they want to take a week of vacation or two weeks of vacation, or maybe they want to plan, you know, two or three long weekends because they don't have off. They don't have unlimited time and unlimited money for their hunt. So they're looking for a date so they can plan that out. Right. But unfortunately it doesn't work that way in the deer's world. They don't have calendars. They don't know it's October 25th. Um, so we get back to that bell curve. If you're on a farm where the first doe comes in the heat, November 7th, your buck activity could be entirely different in this time frame than if you're on a farm where the first doe comes in the heat October 24th. Absolutely. And so, and so a lot of times, you know, guys are going to work and they're hearing from one guy at work, they saw two mature bucks and, and two, two and a half, and they were chasing and grunting and it's October 25th and the other guy ain't seeing nothing. And it might have nothing to do with you doing anything wrong. It might simply be that on that farm, there was a doe that came in the heat and she came in the heat early. So it's, people are always looking for a date and they're looking for something that you can really put their finger on and their hand on. So they can say, you know, this is the best time every year. And I actually think this is the best time frame every year, but you know, you could be on it. For, for example, I can give you a real live scenario right now. Um, my, my two farms uh, in Southern Iowa, one, one's in Wayne County, one's in Decatur County. In Decatur County, um, it just opened right up as far as buck activity, mature buck activity, and I suspect that there's probably a doe that came in the heat early and these bucks are on their feet. It's in the daytime. Uh, and, and you would think it's November 7th, 
on my other farm in Wayne County, nothing. You would think it's October 1st. They're completely on a feed to, to bed and a bed to feed pattern. Um, normal scraping activity, but nothing. You would, you would have no, no inkling that, that you're getting close to this peak rutting activity. And these farms are only 20 miles apart, but the deer behavior is entirely different. And that doesn't hold true every year. You know, some years it's the same, and then some years it's completely flip-flopped. And I guess that's my point is, uh, as hunters, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, as hunters, we, we need to recognize that while the median breeding may take place the 13th and 14th and 15th every single year, which is true, that first doe that comes in heat, um, that changes. And I, and I also think, and, and this is just, this is not a scientific study by me or anything like that, but if you're in a high populated area, so if you have a farm that has a lot of does, uh, your chances of having a doe come in and heat early is probably greater just because that's the math than if you have a, a farm that has a low population just because there's that many less, the chances are smaller. Right. So, um, it's, so I, it's almost, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's almost like we need to stop looking at deer hunting as this gigantic uh, macro at law of averages that everything's going to happen the first two weeks in November and break it down to a micro level and focus on what your farm is doing in the area that you're hunting. Yes. Yes. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to say in a long-winded version. Yep. Right. Absolutely. You can be you can be a mile apart. You and your buddy can be a mile apart and have completely different ruts, completely different timings of ruts, completely different activities on scrapes, and I think it's all triggered um, by when the does are starting to come into heat. And, and actually, so I've been thinking this for like 15, 20 years, and the evidence that I have through my experiences, and again, not science, but just what I observe, points to this. But there's actually there's actually some radio collared studies, and and the one I can think of is uh, Penn State has a deer study out um, where they're they're saying exactly that. And I know Penn State is is not Iowa, but it's still it's still that northern latitude uh, deer herd. And I would think that 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 study that bears out that the does really do trigger the bucks rut, if you want to call it that. Yep. I think is absolutely absolutely true across the entire Midwest. I don't care if you're in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Iowa. I think that's entirely true because I saw my experience with this whole first doe coming in the heat is the same in Wisconsin as it was as it is today in Iowa. I'm seeing the exact same thing. So yeah, I, I think you know hunters, and, and it's it's forced on us because most hunters are weekend hunters. Most hunters are weekend weekend hunters, and I'm going to take a vacation. So it's forced on us to try and pick the best week that we can, and that's understandable. But in reality, that's not how it works because right. nature doesn't nature doesn't say it's October 25th, so now it's going to be a good day to hunt. Right. Just doesn't work that way. Right. So, okay, so we've kind of focused on this, uh, you know, this first doe. Now, I want to take a kind of a sidestep now and talk about ag because 
I've noticed on my farms that there's a shift. Once all the egg starts coming out, some of the deer stay, some of the deer go. Do you have any specific strategies or does your strategy change based off of whether or not like a neighboring property or the, the egg on your property is standing or gets cut? Well, ab- yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I actually plan for and, and plant food plots, um, basically anticipating the fall harvest. So for me, for me, once the soybeans come off and once corn comes off, that just means that my my egg in the form of food plots become that more attractive. Um, standing alfalfa is probably the best food source there is. At least that's my opinion, especially down here in southern Iowa. And that really doesn't doesn't uh, the deer really don't quit eating on that standing alfalfa, lush alfalfa until you know well into November. So that that's going to remain a a heavy food source. But I'll actually drive around and make note in my mind. Okay, there's beans over here. There's corns. Over, there's corn over here. And then you got to keep track of, you know, who's combining when. And if corn comes off late, it seems like the deer are more spread out. If beans come off late, the deer are more spread out. So if you can create the best habitat you can on your farm, if you're hunting private land, and then mix in some some food plots some transition food food plots when the surrounding egg comes off uh the deer will actually be less spread out and they're actually easier to hunt and once you get you know toward the end of november and obviously we're not talking about that time frame right now but deer really start to congregate about around what's left so this time of year around me uh there's still some standing corn there's still some standing beans and deer are showing that they're really spread out. There's a lot of food out there available for them. Uh, it's probably more difficult to pattern deer behavior because there is so much food. And even when corn does come off, it seems like there's usually a good 10 days worth of corn on the ground. You know, is, is your neighbor that just combined his 30 acres of corn, did he, did he now pasture his cows in there? So these are all things you want to note. Um, yourself but i plant my food plots in the spring actually in anticipation of the fall harvest that's that's if you're if you are planting food plots and you're planting um grain food plots like corn and soybeans you really have to pay attention to what your neighbors are planting and i actually like to plant if i'm planting corn and i only want to plant an acre of corn you really can't get away with planting an acre of corn up next next to timber it just won't grow but if your neighbor's planting 40 acres of corn, you can get away with planting an acre right next to your neighbor's 40 acres because now there's 41 acres available and your your one acre will be the, the only acre that's left when right. the fall harvest right. um, comes through. So yeah, you do, you definitely have to change your strategy or maybe not. You know, if, if you're hunting transition areas uh, to a standing bean field and it's your standing bean field, that transition area or that pattern might get good after the fall harvest, which coincidentally occurs right around this, this time frame every year. I mean, I, I think we're a little late this year because of all this rain we've had, but normally, normally beans are off 
um, by now, or you know, the majority of them are off and corn is off. Um, so by the time you get to this time frame, uh, if you are, if you do have standing crops, that's your ticket. At least in my opinion, that's what I've been doing for, you know, 20, 25 years is keying in on the most preferred food sources there is. Right. Especially this time of year. Have you ever made contact with a farmer and asked them uh, to leave up some crops and then you, you just pay them back what they're worth? Have you ever done a tactic like that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yep. And that, and so, so that way you're not, you necessarily don't have to go through, you don't have to have the equipment. You don't have to actually plant the food plot. You're just asking to have crops left. Yeah, correct. And, you know, and especially if you don't own the land, if you're asking for permission, um, you're knocking on doors and you're getting permission on private land that's also being farmed. Um, that's, that's really your only choice. Your other choice typically is to go to the farmer and say, you know, I'd like two acres here for a food plot. And then they're going to basically charge you rent because you know, most farmers aren't going to want to take acreage out of uh, production just so you can put a food plot in unless, unless you pay them or have a really good relationship with that farmer. Right. Um, but, but again, most farmers aren't going to uh, care. In fact, they probably make more money if they just leave you it and you pay them the yield, you know? So yeah. if they're going to, if they're running 150 bushel corn and it's going for three dollars a bushel, an acre of corn is going to cost you 450 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, if it's worth it, if it's worth it to pay them 450 dollars to have an acre of corn. You know, that's definitely an option, and and I've done it before. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so kind of going back to the the buck side of things is now this this pre-rut time frame is now a good time to maybe break out the the rattling antlers or the grunt tube or potentially a snort wheeze uh well i i don't do a lot of snort wheezing i'm just not very good at it <laughs> but uh there's there's pretty much never a time that i'll go in the woods even october 1st where i don't have my antlers in my grunt call with me but i I also don't really blind call often at all. Right. Uh, I'm not saying I won't do it, but I just, that's just my preferred method is I don't do a lot of blind calling. So absolutely. If I'm, if I'm hunting this time of year, the rattling antlers are with me, the grunt calls with me. And if it looks like I can call to a target buck, I'll do it. Um, if you're in a bed to feed type pattern in this time frame and maybe you're off a little bit. So you have your stand set up and a couple nights you witness a buck that you would harvest, you know, is just out of bow range. I don't know that I would call to him. I, I think maybe I would not call and move my stand and try and set up that way. It, that's kind of a judgment, yep. a judgment call by the individual hunter. But I will, I will say this um, less is more in my opinion. But if you, if you start, if you start to rely on your rattling antlers and your grunt call and your snort wheeze and stuff, if, if that's what you're relying on, and, I, and I'm, this is just for me, it seems for me when I'm starting to rely on that stuff, that means my season is not going very well. That means I probably didn't have my stands in the right spot. You know, maybe I got lazy a couple mornings, whatever it may be. But if I'm relying on that stuff more um, than normal, 
it's probably something I'm doing wrong. Right. So it's almost like you're using it as a crutch instead of putting yourself in the right position to intercept that deer movement. Yes. That's, that's my, yeah, that's, you said it exactly what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. If you're, if you're and especially if you're blind calling, if you're blind calling a lot, it's probably because you're doing something else wrong. Right. Right. And that's one thing that I've learned over the years and I do less and less and less of every single year is blind calling. Um, I am, I don't know. I, maybe if I'm having a tough rut and I'm just trying to, you know, I got two days left I'm trying to work something up. But, um, one thing I really like to do is wait and look at the, if I see a buck coming and he's out of range, put my binos on him, take a look at him, see what he's doing. Is he, is he, walking fast maybe i'll try to grunt at him to stop him and i go through uh you know kind of a progression of calls okay is he if he's making a a scrape or raking a tree he might be a little bit more susceptible to come into a call because he's you know he has aggressive body language but if he's you know real weary and like tiptoeing through the timber trying not to be seen i probably won't call at him just for fear of spooking him yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and the other thing I would say for me is it seems like if a if a buck is farther away, it's easier for me to call it. Yeah. It's, it's more, I have more luck. So if I'm, if I'm in the timber, let's say I'm in a transition food plot, for example, and it's November 1st and, and a buck comes through and he's cruising, but he's 60 yards out and I can't get a shot. I don't know if I want to necessarily call it's just a, it's a judgment call and it's it's kind of I'm, I'm smiling and laughing here because how you said it is so true that you really want to you really want to watch that deer and if the deer's already spooked so let's say let's say something happened and the deer's spooked then I'm definitely not going to call to it because now you're just going to associate your rattling your calling with danger anyways because they're probably not going to come in but yet if I'm sitting let's say I am sitting at observation stand this time you're you know waiting for that first doe to come in heat and a mature buck comes out and he's sniffing some does, you know, he's not really running and chasing like you see these year and a half and stuff do, but he's, he's out there and all the other deer out in that food plot know he's there. Um, maybe I will, you know, turn my back to him and hit the rattling antlers together just a couple, I mean, literally like two seconds and then hang them back up and see if that gets him interested enough to come over by me. But more often than not, if I think that that deer is on a, a bed to feed pattern and I can intercept them the next day. If I can, then I might not do anything. I might just have a, have a good night, watch that deer and then not call and then try and set up on them the next day. But that's just, there's, there are guys that call in big bucks and they do it successfully. And I'm just not one of them. I'm not saying I've never done it. I just, I have a different kind of hunting method where it seems like I'm trying to put myself in the right spot more so than uh trying to call to them yeah i don't think either way is right or wrong it's just that that's my preference yeah absolutely and one thing i've noticed for me on the farms that i hunt and yeah there are some guys that call in big deer every year but every time i rattle uh rattle and it does work it's never like a target buck it's never it's never been a like a four year old or older. It's always been like that two, three year old class that, you know, those are the bucks. They're running all over hell trying to find a doe and they don't care 
what it sounds like. I mean, you could slam your car door and it's going to come running in. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's your blind calling. Yeah, for blind calling. Yeah, that's when you're that's when you're blind calling, right? Yeah, and I and I think that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know that I I don't know that I have anything more to add for that. Yeah. The only thing I would really really stress, and and this is again, this is just my opinion, is that less is more. You know, don't go out there and grunt and rattle every half an hour, and then grunt and rattle every half an hour, and your rattling sequence takes five minutes long, and I I think you're really hurting yourself. If you want to rattle, I think a good rattling sequence lasts about 10 seconds. It's just you slam the antlers together, you pull them apart, you slam them together and grind them a little bit, and maybe you pull them apart, and then one more time you hit them and tickle the antlers, and you're done. You know, yeah. It's not a it's not a drawn-out two-minute ordeal, and I think that's what a lot of people are doing is they're, they're just calling way too hard, way too often, way too much, too loud, everything. Right. Um, and I think less is more. So if you want to call – it is exciting and it's fun. So, you know, whitetail hunting is supposed to be fun. That's why we all do it. Yep. Um, so I would definitely say try it, you know, go out and do it, but just less is more. And, and I okay. think you'll have better success. And what do deer do when they hear that? They go straight downwind, you know, unless they're real horned up, right? They're, they, they, yep. may, they may beeline to you, but oftentimes you rattle and they're going to make a loop downwind. They're going to try to catch your scent. And uh, then after that, it's game over, you know, then you just get busted. And I, yes. And I, and I think that's why I don't do a lot of it because I spent so much time and I work so hard in the off season planning and scheming and hanging tree stands and, and putting in fence jumps. You know, I'll actually build fence to, to correlate a fence jump with where I can hunt them the best. I spend so much time and effort and resources into trying to do it without the deer knowing I'm hunting them the last thing I want to do is go into the woods and grunt and rattle and then have those and fawns and three-year-olds and, and all these deer busting me because they're getting downwind or they're seeing me rattle or whatever. I just assume not have any deer know I'm hunting them. And I think eventually, you know, that buck will be on its feet during the daylight. He'll make a mistake. There'll be a hot doe in the area. Something will be on my side and I'll get him. Right. That's just, that's how I, you know, I, why would I spend hundreds of hours every year doing all this stuff and then going to the woods and blow it out by, you know, just doing a lot of calling. Right. Absolutely. You know, on the flip, on the flip side, let's say you are the weekend hunter. Let's say you're the guy that doesn't have food plots and you're hunting public land and you only got a couple long weekends. Well, I think for that guy or girl, I think calling probably would be a better, uh, more advantageous method, right? Because, Maybe you only got a four-day weekend and then a week back to work and another four-day weekend. Maybe maybe your method is, is to try and do a little bit more rattling or calling because you have to make it happen in a shorter time frame where I can play this cat and mouse game right? You know, for maybe a week or two or three weeks so I'm off of work. So it, it all depends on the individual hunter. You know, you got three weeks vacation or you can play cat and mouse for three weeks if you're only hunting a couple long weekends, you know, rattling and calling might be your ticket you see what i'm saying yeah absolutely now you got me intrigued when you mentioned something about creating your own fence jumps i want you to elaborate on that well so you know an observation that i've had going back you know 30 years i mean everyone knows you know this but you know you got a 40 acre long a quarter mile long cattle fence 
and deer want to cross it somewhere, they're going to cross in the easiest spots. I mean, we've all read this stuff and we know it. And people have, you know, tied down the first two barbed wires on top to make it easier and, and stuff like that. But I'll go one step further and I'll say, okay, there's deer traveling through uh, this draw, for example. And this draw is, you know, 150 yards wide. I can't hunt. I can't hunt 150 yards. If I if I hunt this side with the right wind, I'm only covering you know 30 yards of 150 yards, and, and vice versa. So what I'll actually do is I'll go in and I'll make a 40 a 40 acre you know a quarter mile fence. I'll actually build a fence, and I'll create an opening. I won't even make a jump. I'll just actually create an opening like a gate, and I'll leave it open. And then all the deer are coming through that opening. So instead of relying on a 40 year old cattle fence, I'll make my own. And you know, what is, what does that cost? That costs me about a weekend of work with my son or my daughter. And, and <laughs> whether and, they like it or not, and, right? <laughs> well, it's fun. It's, if you get to also hunt it, it's fun. So it's a weekend of work. Right. It's hard work. It's, it's going to cost you about $500 but your return on investment is phenomenal right? because you've just created a, a phenomenal funnel that's going to last you for 30 years. Right. So when you spread that weekend of work and $500 out over 30 years and the hunting you get out of it, there's very few things that you can do that'll have that kind of return. Yeah. So yeah, that's, and that's, and that's my point with, if I'm going to spend that kind of time and commitment putting in fence jumps and, and all this other stuff that I do, then I'm not going to go in there and start rattling and grunting because that, why would I, then, then don't even put the fence jump in, then just go in there and start rattling and grunting. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. That's very interesting. I like that. I like that style, uh, that way of thinking. Um, I know some guys who um, have done it, uh, they've maybe cleared out some, uh, cleared out an area to build, uh, to make a food plot. Well, all the stuff that they've cleared out, what they've done is they have blocked off certain parts of the timber so that the deer are, can only enter the food plot, uh, from certain points. And then that's where their tree stands are at. So it's yep. just like they've created a wall of brush that they can't go around. And it's just, I wouldn't call it shooting fish in a barrel because anything can happen. Like they have escape routes, but it's a unique way of funneling deer down. That's for sure. Yeah, correct. Any, any, anything that you can do to put your odds, to put the advantage with you is, is definitely what you're trying to do. You know, that these interior food plots that I put in that really spike in activity this time of year, uh, the amount of scraping, um, the amount of like rutting activity you'll see. And when I say rutting activity, I'm not talking breeding, but I'm talking you're scraping and bucks coming into these transition areas. They just, they can't help it. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like they're going out to eat. So they're, they're getting out of their beds and they're going out to eat and they're going out to eat. And they're going to, they're going to eat at this 20 acre soybean field or this alfalfa field, but they can't help themselves and they have to go to the bar and get a drink first. Yep. And in the bar and the drink first is this little quarter acre clover or winter rye food plot that's in between and they just have to stop there they have to and they have to hit the scrape that's conveniently located because i located it there 25 yards away upwind of my tree stand and you know in the more of these scenarios you can plan out for yourself and then you sneak in there october 27th or november 1st and that's how you get them 
Yeah. You know, that's, that's how you outsmart them in those transition areas. I know I'm going back to that again, but they're so successful because you get in, you're not bumping any deer because you're not, you're not on top of them in their bedding area and you can get out because all the deer are past you in the evening. So the evening hunts in this time frame on these transition plots, they don't, have, they don't have to be food plots, but these little transition areas that are just ripped up with rubs and scrapes. And yeah. for me, cause I'm hunting private land, all these little food plots, those are really key this time of year. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite pre-rut. Um, you, I call it a staging area, right? I think it's the same thing of what you're talking about. It, it's an area yeah. that the deer kind of, they slow down on their way to the main food source and they may spend a little time there for me. Uh, over the years, I've known that this is where a lot of rubs are, are at. Um, not necessarily a lot of scrapes, just depending on what the terrain is and if they're whether it's real thick in there or, or whatever. But I like to hunt those particular places and not necessarily on the field edges because it's a it's where the deer kind of slow down. They may munch on some acorns that are there, or you know the bucks maybe make a make sign. But this time of year, that's my favorite, absolute favorite place to hunt. Yes, I agree with you. I, I had when I was a kid, when I was a 12 year old kid hunting on my dad's farm in Wisconsin, uh, there was a, I want to say it was about a 40 acre alfalfa field. And I used to hunt that field every single night. And I think for about 10 years, I never killed a deer on it, but every night I'd see 20 deer, 30 deer, but it's impossible to hunt. But deer like these big, you know, People call them destination fields or whatever, but I call them, it's, it's their evening feeding pattern. They like it. They like these big fields, whether it's a soybean field or an alfalfa field, cut corn, they like it. So I just go ahead and give it to them. I let, you know, I, I say there's a 20 acre alfalfa field out here. Maybe it's on my property. Maybe it's the neighbors. I give it to them. I don't hunt it. Maybe I'll observe it uh, to watch for that first hot doe like we talked about, but I give them that. So I know that they always have that evening feeding pattern. That's, that's going to be their destination. And then you try to plan out these, these inter, intercepting, you know, I call them transition areas. You call them staging areas. It's the same thing. Yep. But yep. you try and intercept them as they're going out there. You know, maybe it's a hundred yards from that, from that main, that main egg field. And that, for me, that's been the ticket the last 20 years on an, on an evening hunt, um, pretty much any time frame. Uh, but it really starts to heat up this time of year because you, you, you start to get these mature bucks as the first uh, available doe comes into heat. Um, they can't help themselves. They just can't. It's, it's almost, I shouldn't say it's too easy because it's not easy, especially if you're hunting mature bucks, but uh, they, they can't help themselves. They have to go in and check that little food plot out. They just, they can't not, they can't not do it. You know, eventually they make a mistake and, and then that's when you win. That's, that's, that's the successful night. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All in right. the morning, in the morning is the same way. Yeah. You can hunt those transition areas the same way because you're getting in, you're not bumping deer and the deer move past you and they bed. So yeah. access is key regardless of the time of year. Right. I mean, correct. Yeah, correct. So, if you're bumping deer going in and out of your stands, eventually, eventually the game is over. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, you're going to put so much pressure on them. I don't care how many food plots you got out. I don't care if you got the biggest, baddest grunt call out there. If you're putting pressure on the deer herd, it's, uh, the game is over. Yep, absolutely. All right, so morning versus evening hunts this time of year. Uh, I like evenings 
I like evenings basically from season opener up until up until the first dough becomes available. And that seems to be this time of year. So October 25th to November 5th, that's when I'll start hunting mornings. Uh, I'll try, you know, again, these transition areas, uh, uh, fence jumps, funnels. Those are my morning spots. And then evenings will be uh, more food, more food orientated. Right. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're asking either or. I would say right around this time of year, it's both. I don't really have a preference to one or the other. But I, I will say leading up to this, you know, if you've hunted a lot of mornings leading up to this, chances are you've probably put a lot of pressure on your deer herd. Yeah. So you've, you've probably made it harder. You know, now that you've gotten to this good time of year, you've probably made it harder on yourself. Not that you can't do it successfully, but it's, it's pretty tough to, to kill a mature buck, uh, you know, on a morning hunt leading up until this time frame. But right, right around this time frame, absolutely a hunt morning. Some of the biggest bucks I've ever killed on morning hunts in this time frame absolutely end of october morning hunt you can get a hot doe in the area that's you're gonna have some really good hunting some really good hunting you'll have every buck in the woods around you if if that hot doe is by you absolutely well i mean we've covered a lot today and uh i i really appreciate you taking time to hop on the podcast and chat with us today uh thanks for the intel thanks for the information and uh, let me be the first to say good luck uh, the rest of this season you too, and good luck to anyone uh, listening. I hope it's another good year. Be safe. And there you have it. Tom, appreciate your time. Hopefully you guys were able to take away something from this podcast that maybe you haven't thought about before, and uh, maybe that might get you in the woods and uh, take a shot this time of year, this pre-rut time of year. Maybe try to locate that first doe that's going into heat. And, uh, man, I don't know. There's something about this time of year that just all of a sudden there's a you're, you got your binos up, you're looking around, and there is a shooter stepping out for the first time in daylight. I don't know. There's something about that that really gets me. Now, if you guys like this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Uh, tell people about it. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast right all you have to do is go online to itunes or wherever you download your podcast and simply search iowa sportsman you will find this podcast subscribe to it and that way you will get these automatically to your phone other than that guys make sure you're checking out social media not only on the iowa sportsman facebook page but on the sportsman's nation instagram and facebook pages as well along with all the other podcasts that are on the sportsman's nation thank you very much for tuning in and uh be safe this upcoming rut when you're climbing in and out of your tree stands and most importantly have fun